because of the Magnitsky Act, Putin has has put me probably as his number one foreign enemy. Uh, I've been they've issued death threats against me. They've um, uh, they've tried organizing a an illegal rendition to get me back to Moscow. Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer, together with my co-host Helen Mountfield, and hopefully towards the end of this broadcast, we're going to be joined on a crackly line from Oxford by Murray Hunt. In a moment, we're going to speak to Bill Browder, the driving force behind legislation being adopted in countries across the globe, enforcing sanctions against foreign state officials involved in grave human rights abuses and systemic corruption. Also, stay tuned for a discussion after our interview with Bill when we're going to dissect some of the other recent legal developments in international affairs, from the commutation of Roger Stone's sentence to the Polish election results, and in the United Kingdom, confusion as to whether we're going to be required by law to wear masks, as one section of the government appears to be briefing, or as Michael Gove explained, simply wear them as a matter of old-fashioned English courtesy. Clearly not a minister who spent much time on the beaches of Bournemouth of late. Now, As regular listeners to the pod will know, we've had a particular focus in a number of our episodes on the changing nature of the international order, including the significance of the declining influence of the United States and the concomitant increasing prominence of China, together with the re-emergence of Russia as a force on the international stage. These developments quite obviously have potentially profound implications for the future of international rule of law and in particular, the protection of fundamental human rights, not principles that either China or Russia tend to cherish. Now, the experience of our guests exemplifies not simply the human rights challenges posed by the malign influences of states such as Russia, but also how law can play a role in combating them. Many of you will already know of Bill Browder and his extraordinary work, but let me just briefly recap. Bill is a financier by trade and a very successful one at that. In the years spanning both sides of the turn of the last millennia, his businesses, the the Hermitage Fund, was a major investor in Russia. The fund's business model of taking on large former state-owned Russian entities made it deeply unpopular with the state, not least from May 2000 onwards with its new leader, the KGB's former man in Dresden, Vladimir Putin. In 2007, the Moscow offices of Hermitage were raided and the business found itself the victim of a state-orchestrated fraud. By this time, Bill had been expelled from Russia and he appointed Sergei Magnitsky, a tax advisor at his lawyers, to investigate the fraud. Tragically for Sergei, he was not simply very good at his job, but he was very courageous. Providing testimony about his investigations, he implicated senior interior ministry officials in a quite simply vast tax fraud. His work led to his arrest, and over the course of a pre-trial detention lasting almost 12 months, he was kept in ever-increasing conditions of squalor, was mistreated, and received grossly inadequate medical care. In 2009, he died in prison, aged 37. And I would urge you all to read the judgment of the European Court of Human Rights handed down last year to get a sense of just how appalling his treatment was and the nature of the regime that meted it out. 
And the other bit of essential reading is Bill's own book, Red Notice, a story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice. Since the death of Sergei, as his book title suggests, Bill has been a tireless campaigner for ensuring that legal frameworks exist for ensuring accountability for those involved not simply in Sergei's death, but in other cases of state-sanctioned human rights abuses, as well as seeking to raise public consciousness as to the threat posed by the phenomena known as Putinism. This led in 2012 to the enactment in the United States of the Magnitsky Act, which barred those suspected involvement in Sergei's death from entry into the country. Similar legislation has followed in a raft of countries from Canada to Estonia to Jersey. And last week, standing next to Bill and Sergei's wife and son, the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, announced the introduction of what he described as Magnitsky-style sanctions in the United Kingdom. This regulation provides sanctions against 25 Russian nationals involved in Sergei's mistreatment, together with 20 Saudi nationals involved in the death of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, two Burmese generals involved in violence against the Rohingya, and two North Korean organizations. These provisions were brought into effect by the Global Human Rights Sanctions Regulations of 2020 which provide its purposes to deter and provide accountability for violations by foreign state actors of fundamental human rights. It provides the power of the Secretary of State to designate persons or entities involved in human rights abuses to impose financial sanctions and exclusion from the United Kingdom. Bill, welcome to the podcast and many congratulations on securing the legislation last week. And also apologies for... um, trying to crudely summarise the last 20 years of your life in two minutes. Can I begin? I think you did a good job, actually. <laughs> I'm relieved. Uh, can I begin really at the beginning of your campaigning? And I'm particularly interested from a rule of law perspective, why your reaction to the death of your colleague was, to, was, it, was, was a legal response? why your response was to try and promote legislation and to take a case to court. What took you down that route? So, so Sergei died on November uh, 16th, 2009. And I got the news of his murder the next morning. And for me, it was the most tragic, heartbreaking, life-changing piece of news I could have ever gotten. And Sergei would basically not have died if he hadn't been working for me, if he hadn't been my lawyer. And that responsibility um, that Sergei was effectively killed because he worked for me has weighed heavily on me from that day. And for me, I couldn't just do nothing. I had to do everything. And um, I made a vow to his memory, um, to his family, and to myself I was going to put aside everything else I was doing and go after the people who killed him to make sure they face justice. And at first, I thought we could get justice in Russia. There was a huge amount of, of evidence and information um, about what they did to Sergei. Um, Sergei had written, in his 358 days of detention, he had written 450 complaints documenting his mistreatment. And once a month or so, he would take a handful of these complaints and give them to his lawyer who would file them. 
the Russians would ignore the complaints, but we got copies of them. And as a result, we have what I would describe as probably one of the most well-documented uh, cases of human rights abuses come out of Russia in the last 35 years. And because of that, I would have assumed that the Russian government would at least have to prosecute the low-level executors of the crime. But nothing of the sort happened. Um, the uh, Russian government circled the wagons. Um, uh, Vladimir Putin got involved personally um, in exonerating every single person who played a role in the false arrest, torture, and murder of Sergei Magnitsky. They went even further than that. They promoted and gave state honors to some of the people who were most complicit. And so it, it, it became obvious to me that if we wanted to have any chance of getting justice, we were going to have to do it outside of Russia. And so I, I'm not a lawyer, um, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction. I'm a financier. I'm a, I'm a hedge fund manager. That's my training. And, um, and so I had to learn law. And, and so I went around and I said, okay, what, what can we do outside of Russia? And um, the European Court of Human Rights um, exists for this type of story. However, um, as uh, I'm sure you and most of your colleagues know, the European Court of Human Rights, it takes about 10 years to get a judgment. That, that, that's what it took for us. Um, and when you get a judgment, you don't get a judgment against any individuals. You get a judgment against the state of Russia. Nobody is held personally responsible. And so that's that for us, that was not a satisfying route to justice. I then looked at the International Criminal Court. And then I even at the time met the head of the International Criminal Court. And he said, well, if you have, you know, 100,000 dead, then, then you can come here and bring a case, but um, not for one dead person. Um, I then uh, got, got in touch with a friend of mine, um, David Crane, who's a famous um, former prosecutor at the International Criminal Court who run, ran, runs something called Impunity Watch at Syracuse University. And, and I said to him, what about universal jurisdiction? And um, he said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll get my class at, at Syracuse to um, do an analysis of, of um, each country's universal jurisdiction to see if there's any country where you can bring a case. And so they went through country by country, and we, we pretty much determined that there was no country where we could bring a case because either the victim or the perpetrator has to live in that country. Um, uh, in, in most countries that have universal jurisdiction laws, they don't actually uh, apply them. And so there is no universal jurisdiction. So that basically exhausted all international remedies. And then, then I said, okay, what, what else can we do? Well, we can go to different governments. We can go to the U.S. government or the British government and complain about it. And if we're really lucky, they'll issue a statement um, saying that they don't like the fact that, that Sergei Magnitsky was murdered, and, and that would be the end of the, of the story. And for me, that was unacceptable. And so I said to myself, well, if there's no laws that exist, um, then we need to create a law. And, um, and I said, well, what law could we create? And Sergei Magnitsky was murdered um, because he uncovered a $230 million government corruption scheme. And the people who committed that government corruption scheme don't keep that $230 million in Russia. They keep that money in London. They buy houses in the south of France. They send their girlfriends on shopping trips to Milan. They go to Aspen to ski or South Beach in Miami. And... Um, and that is something that we have some say over in theory. And so I took this idea 
to Washington at first in 2010, shortly after Sergei was murdered. And I met with Senator Benjamin Cardin, um, who is a Democrat from Maryland, and Senator John McCain, a Republican from Arizona. And I told him the story of what happened to Sergei. And I said, can we ban their visas and freeze their assets? And these two um, senators said, yes. And that became known as the Magnitsky Act, the proposed legislation. And originally it was just proposed for Sergei Magnitsky. But the moment that, they, that they, they launched it and put it on the law books as a proposed piece of legislation, their phones lit up from other people in Russia who've been victims of human rights abuse. And they said to these two senators, you, you've hit the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. Can you sanction the people who killed my father, my brother, my sister, my aunt? And after about a dozen of these calls, these two senators realized they were something much bigger than just one case. They had, they had sort of stumbled into the new technology for dealing with human rights abuse. <clears throat> and so they added 65 words to the um, draft law, the draft Magnitsky Act, to include all gross human rights abusers in Russia. And, and then they launched it again, and, and, um, and this had huge momentum in Washington. And in a period of, of less than two years, um, it, went, it went from a, a proposed legislation to a vote, and it passed the Senate 92 to 4, passed the House of Representatives with 89%. And on December 14, 2012, um, President Obama signed it into law and it became a federal law, the Sergei Magnitsky Rule of Law Accountability Act. Um, which applies these sanctions to Russian human rights abusers. And Vladimir Putin went out of his mind. He banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families in retaliation. And he made it his single largest foreign policy priority to repeal the Magnitsky Act. Why did he do that? Because Vladimir Putin um, is a guy who has stolen a lot of money. He values money more than human life. He's killed for money. And all of a sudden, I've come up with a piece of legislation which potentially puts his and his cronies' money at risk. And that became something deeply disturbing to him. His emotional reaction had the opposite effect of what he intended it to, which was that these uh, senators said, well, if Vladimir Putin is so upset about this, um, we should do this to all dictators. And so they proposed the Global Magnitsky Act. And in December 2016, the Global Magnitsky Act was passed into law. And as you mentioned in your introduction, on that same day, the Estonian government passed, or the Estonian parliament and the Estonian government then created the Estonian Magnitsky Act. In 2017, we had the uh, Canadian, Lithuanian, Latvian Magnitsky Act. In 2018, um, Britain uh, put in place the Magnitsky Act, um, which um, hadn't, which still needed uh, further legislation, which was then passed last week. Um, the Magnitsky Act is still um, in its infancy. There's still not that many people sanctioned. There's just a few hundred. Um, the Magnitsky Act still doesn't cover the whole world. We need the European Union and, and Australia, but um, it's um, it's definitely something. Um, uh, that changes it changes the whole tone of of human rights around the world. Bill, I'm going to ask you in a minute about some of the theory behind it, but just in terms of the practicalities, in terms of what lies ahead. I mean, what's your what's your aim? Is it your aim to kind of have 
laws like this everywhere? Are you, you mentioned the EU, where it's, it's currently before the EU. I mean, are you looking at all forms of intra-governmental organisations? What's, what's, what's the plan? Well, so it's 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 um, so I, I'm a totally non total non-believer in the United Nations. When you have Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, and, uh, and and country in Venezuela on the Human Rights Commission, that, that that's a that's an organization that doesn't work anymore. Um, and and that's in a certain way the Magnitsky Act and and our campaign is is sort of a what I view as a replacement for for these dysfunctional non-functional international organizations. And so our, my goal. Is is to say, okay, where, where do these um, bad guys want to keep their money? They want to keep their money in good countries, in rule of law countries, um, in places where they're safe and where they won't be arrested arbitrarily. And so, I want to get all the rule of law countries um, to have Magnitsky acts. I don't care about the um, bad countries. I don't want the. In fact, I don't want bad countries. I don't want countries where there's dictatorship and and corruption to have a Magnitsky Act because they'll misuse it. I want to have civilized countries. And so um, we have a few more to go. We have the EU. Um, uh, we probably have Japan, Australia. Australia is actually quite quite advanced in their discussions. New Zealand. Um, uh, and then and then you know some countries like Norway, which are not Switzerland, which are which are sort of not EU countries, but will follow suit. Um, and then I think we're done. And then at that point, then the big challenge is to get these countries to apply it, um, uh, not just to um, to the easy human rights abusers from countries that are not going to cause trouble, but to the, you know, to vast groups of Chinese officials who are, you know, uh, setting up concentration camps, um, to much bigger groups of Russian officials, and and um, can I, and so can I ask you about? Um, the effectiveness of the mechanisms that you've identified of sanctions and exclusion. I mean, Helen and I are kind of, as lawyers, human rights lawyers, are used to kind of using existing laws. Uh, you've already identified the, the, the real problems with those in terms of international disputes and the, the problems of getting more than a handful of people before the International Criminal Court are also well known. But you've gone for sanctions and exclusion. And is that because you think actually in order to understand states that abuse human rights generally, we have to understand that most of them are, are forms of kleptocracy, or, um, or is this one that is only kind of applicable to states like Russia where the ruling elite are on the take? Well, what, what, what we've learned from, from the first few years of the Global Magnitsky Act is that um, uh, corruption and human rights abuse are hand in hand. You know, Sergei Magnitsky was tortured and murdered because he uncovered corruption. Um, and, and in just about every place I've looked at, um, uh, that the, the two are, are indistinguishable. It's all part of the same thing. And we also live now in a globalized world where, you know, maybe the Khmer Rouge wasn't going on vacation to Saint-Tropez but just about every other dictator in in our in our world now travels internationally, keeps their money internationally. It's a globalized world, and so we're in a globalized world. We have the opportunity to take away something which is coveted from uh, dictators, which is their ability to travel and spend their money. And um, and it's it's remarkable 
how effective this is based on how upset people get when they get added to the Magnitsky list. It's it's something which in in the old days they the uh, countries used to apply, but rarely, but they applied occasionally sanctions to other countries. So the United States would sanction Iran. And so who would be sanctioned in Iran? The Iranian people would be sanctioned. And the dictators would be flying in caviar and champagne on private jets for their own enjoyment. We've completely turned this thing around. So the average person in Russia or China or wherever is not being sanctioned, just the individuals who are perpetrating these abuses. And this becomes much easier than to apply. It's very, very hard to to generate the political will to to sanction a whole country. Um, But it's much easier if you say, okay, we're going to sanction the following two dozen people who've done a terrible crime, and we're going to continue to have diplomatic relations and continue to trade with Russia or China or wherever. And that's a much easier thing to convince any politician to do. The, the victims, the individual victims are terrified when they get added to this list. It completely disrupts their life. And more than that, for every person who's sanctioned, you have a thousand others who haven't yet been sanctioned, but are, who have con- con- committed the same crimes, <clears throat> who are afraid that they're going to be sanctioned next. And so it creates a, a climate of fear among human rights abusers that goes far beyond the individual case. Can I ask you about something about its application? And I mean, you've touched on it already, which is ensuring that it is applied and it's applied as widely um, as possible. And I want to ask you about that in the context of the UK's adoption of the regulations last week. I mean, there's there's been some scepticism, not not as to the law itself, which I think has been almost universally welcomed, but as perhaps to the United Kingdom's motivations. I mean, we they sanction a list of Russians whilst at the same time trying to block publication of the ISC's report into the role of uh, Russia may have played in the referendum, the Brexit uh, referendum. They sanction relatively low-ranking Saudi officials at the same time as kick-starting arms sales back to MBS. Um, what's, what, what's, I mean, what's your take on... UK's adoption of these regulations and whether we can expect them to be used um, without fear or favour against um, human rights abusers? Well, I, I'm a guerrilla warrior uh, uh, as a human rights activist, and so I, I take my successes where I can have them, and then I move on to the next battle. And um, we have a success, which is we now have a, a law in place in the UK which is fully functional, and some, uh, and and now the next battle is to add people to the list, and and of course there's going to be all sorts of ugliness and real politic and 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 all that kind of stuff that goes on um, with every government. Um, but we had a big win, which is we got a bunch of bad guys sanctioned, and and I hope we can now expand the sanctions list, get more bad guys sanctioned, and maybe a few bad women as well. Um, and, um, and the way I look at it is that, you know, of course it's not perfect and, and half the battle is getting the law passed. The next half of the battle is getting it implemented. But the the great thing about rule of law countries is that this, this is a law which is greater than any individual. You know, maybe this government will sanction more people. Maybe they won't. Maybe the next one will, maybe they won't, but this will carry on into perpetuity, um, 
uh, and and whoever happens to be the government at the time may use it. And and what it does is it opens the door for every victim to come forward and say, look, I've got evidence. You go to the press and say, I've got evidence. Why aren't you sanctioning such and such? Uh, for NGOs to, to lean on the government. And all of a sudden, we now have a, a much more um, sort of vibrant dialogue with a real tool which has been used where there's a precedent where people can come forward and try to get it used against um, against their their um, perp the perpetrators who ruined their lives or killed their people, and so it's it's a first step. It's not the end of anything, um, but but I think it's a pretty powerful first step. exceptionally informed commentator about the Putin regime. You've given evidence both to the Senate and also to the United Kingdom Parliament about the role that Russia's taking. In terms of Russia's role here and in UK politics, and not least the politics that surrounded the referendum, which was, as you know, incredibly divisive in British society, how concerned should we be about Russian involvement? R Russia, um, and when I say Russia, I mean Vladimir Putin, um, he doesn't have a, he's not a very powerful man in the sense that the Russian economy is not a powerful economy. It's not like the Chinese economy. Their military budget is roughly the same in, in, in dollar terms as the British military budget. So it's not like they're a massive military. They have nuclear weapons, um, a lot of nuclear weapons, but it's not a massive military. And so Putin's uh, only way of, of being powerful is to do things that are sort of plausibly deniable, asymmetric. And so what does he do? They do a lot of cyber warfare. They hack people's computers. They hacked Emmanuel Macron's emails. They hacked Hillary, the DNC's emails. Um, and, and they also spread their money around trying to manipulate every political process. Um, and, and it's anyone who, who thinks that they haven't um, is, is either naive or dishonest. The Russians have gone to every political process, the, the US, the Catalonia, the Scottish referendum, Brexit, everything. Um, and it, and, and what's, what's remarkable, in most countries, politicians are pretty cheap to buy. There, there are people who, are, who will be bought. There are law enforcement officials that can be bought. Um, people, people are desperate for money and they're getting more desperate for money and the Russians realize that. They're actively involved in, in the UK's political process. In fact, I gave evidence about that to the Intelligence and Security Committee, which was part of this famous unreleased Russia report, um, in which I, I described members of the House of Lords who took money from uh, Magnitsky's, um, per, from the perpetrators of the, of the crime that Sergei Magnitsky discovered. British individuals took money from, from those perpetrators to try to prevent those perpetrators being put on on sanctions lists in the UK and elsewhere, and these are people from from both both sides of the political aisle. There's no partisanship here. The Russians are equally equal opportunity bribers, um, and um, and I, I gave names and I gave evidence, uh, which hasn't yet been published, and I hope it will be. We have we've got a big problem in the UK, and everyone's got a big problem everywhere. In Germany, they've got a big problem. In France, in the US, in Canada, it's a big problem. Um, and, and we've done nothing to stop it. And, and um, 
And in fact, we don't even have any legislative framework to begin to stop it. So in America, you have something called the Foreign Agent Registration Act, FARA, which at least says that if you're lobbying on behalf of a, of, of a foreign government, you have to disclose it. In the UK, we don't even have that. There are, there are, there are, are lobbyists and lawmakers, lawmakers, people in the House of Lords who are actively taking money from the Russians to, to further their interests. Lord Barker um, uh, uh, was paid $5 million by Oleg Deripaska to reduce the sanctions on his companies in the United States. A member of the, an active member of the House of Lords was taking money, $5 million from a Russian oligarch to get him off the sanctions list. It's crazy. What's the what's the Russian endgame here? What's the strategy? Why 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 are they doing this? It, well, it's because because they can. Um, you know, you you can spend billions of dollars on tanks and missiles and and all that kind of stuff, or you can spend a few hundred thousand dollars on on bribing officials in foreign countries um, who who are glad who will gladly take the money, and you can particularly do that in places where there's no consequence to those officials from doing so. I mean, just to give you an example, um, the, uh, the, the most senior Russian expert in Swiss law enforcement um, was caught taking money um, from the Russians to scupper the Swiss investigation into money laundering from the Magnitsky case. He was caught and prosecuted, no jail time, and he was given something like a 5,000 Swiss franc suspended sentence that he, he wouldn't have to pay the 5,000 Swiss francs if he doesn't do it again. Um, now, the, I mean, it's 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 you know it's remarkable how 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 many people are ready to take money and sacrifice themselves and there's no consequence. We we have to wake up. This is we're in a we're not in the Cold War anymore, but we're in a war of of uh, what I call uh, criminal war, where where the where you have a criminal regime which is trying to export its criminality and it's finding all sorts of willing takers. I mean that's what I, that's what I, with all of this and with with Mueller and with all that's emerging is sometimes what I scratch my head is to try and work out what's the long-term strategy for Russia. I mean, with the Soviet Union, one could understand what the strategy was because it was an ideology that they were trying to export. What's, what's, the, what's the equivalent with the Russian state? I mean, why are they spending all this time trying to destabilize? I mean, what's their geopolitical long-term goal? They want to live in a world of chaos where if they if 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 they can't rise to our level, they want to bring us down to their level, and and it, and it's working. The chaos is working. Look at what's going on in America right now. It's complete chaos. Even in the UK, this whole Brexit debate completely destroyed a, a cohesive society. Everyone's at each other's throats about it. They 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 they, they thrive on on chaos, and and the more more chaotic it is the less we have time to pay attention to all their misdeeds and then um, work together to stop them or to contain them. And, and, and you use the word strategy. There is no strategy. It's pure tactics. Yes, yeah, so, so Bill, like Richard, I, I, maybe I've, I, I'm attributing too much to this, but I do sometimes wonder what is behind this. So you don't think it's a, a kind of nationalism that if the rest of the world is chaotic, Russian will be str- Russia will be stronger. You think it is just you know, throwing a dead cat in one direction so they can do whatever they want to do in the other. I, I mean, I, I really think that that, um, that that it's it's not a strategy per se. It's it's a it's a it's a way of thinking, which is that um, 
Putin wants to be able to have as much freedom uh, as he can to do whatever he wants. And the best way to have that freedom is to have everybody else in a state of, of distraction, uh, of, of infighting, um, and, and also and, and to create, create like the, where there, a world where there's no right and wrong, where it's just, you know, there's no truth, uh, where, where everything is just sort of um, in, in a state of, of sort of chaotic flux. And, and therefore, he can, he can run a, a fake democracy and, and be president for life, and he can steal all the money from his country, and he can kill his enemies and assassinate them abroad. And, and, um, and nothing will ever happen to him, that he'll, he'll be accepted and warmly embraced because nobody has the, has the um, will or, or, or the, even the attention span to, to deal with him because they're so worried about everything else that's going on. Well, I, I, this is probably the longest we've gone on a podcast without mentioning Trump. Uh, but, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it all... It all fits into um, it all fits into a piece in terms of I mean what we learned in the last week or so about Trump's conversations with Putin and his seemingly unwillingness or inability to to, to stand tall. I, I have some personal experience with the, the relationship between Putin and Trump. In the um, uh, 2018 Helsinki summit, it was just a few moments after. Um, uh, Robert Mueller had indicted the 12 Russian military intelligence officers who were involved in hacking the election. And a, and a reporter asked the question to Putin at the press conference. Um, you know, President, he said, President Putin, are you ready to hand over these 12 GRU officers? And Putin had a, had a, an, a prepared answer. He said, I will hand those officers over um, if President Trump hands over Bill Browder and, and the 11 um, U.S. officials who are members of the Bill Browder International Criminal Enterprise. And, um, and then the journalist said to Trump, what do you think about this? And he said, I think it's a great idea. And um, it, took, it took about four days and a, a, and a vote in the Senate, 98 to zero, not to hand us over um, before Trump walked it back. But um, it's a very worrying situation when you have a U.S. president who seems to be um, either um, under the influence or under pressure or, or something with, with this, um, with Vladimir Putin. That takes me to, just wanted to ask about you really, Bill. I mean, you, you had that experience. You've had the experience, I think, of being arrested on an Interpol warrant in Spain. You're uh, one of the main public enemies in Putin's eyes. And we all know in this country, what that can mean. Um, how ha, ha, has your life been impacted by Russia and Putin and the events of the past few years? Well, um, uh, because of the Magnitsky Act, Putin has has put me probably as his number one foreign enemy. Uh, I've been. They've issued death threats against me. They've. Um, uh, they've tried organizing a, an illegal rendition to get me back to Moscow. They put me on the Interpol uh, list to have me arrested eight times. I would, eight times they put me on the Interpol list, eight times Interpol rejected it. They've applied for my extradition from the UK on multiple occasions. Um, I was arrested in Switzerland. Um, uh, they've sued me. They've made movies about me. They've, I mean, they're, they're constantly after me. There must be 
200 people, 250 people in the Russian government who are working uh, on the uh, Destroy Bill Browder project. Um, but, you know, I, I started this fight 10 years ago when they murdered Sergei Magnitsky. And uh, he's not ever coming back. And um, it's my job to continue to fight um, for him. And I'm not intimidated. And I'm not changing my behavior. I'm not moderating my behavior because of the threats. I carry on. And um, that may lead to some horrific event at some point, but um, I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to be intimidated. Well, Bill, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us. I should say as a human rights lawyer who needs laws in order to be able to help victims of human rights violations, the work you've done is absolutely extraordinary. And we're grateful as lawyers, and no doubt there are going to be generations of victims of human rights abuses who are going to be immensely grateful for the work that you've done in Sergei's memory. We're not going to let you go. We, these podcasts invariably deal with horrendous subject matter, but we like to end it at least on an, just a, a note of lightness uh, to remind us all <laughs> that there is lightness even the darkest times, which is to just ask you for your book recommendation as to either what you've read in the lockdown or what you are hoping to read in the lockdown or somebody we all should read in the lockdown. What's it going to be? Well, I, I, I'm afraid, I'm afraid it's, it's, it's not going to be um, on, a, on too much of a different subject. Um, one of the very best books about the criminality of the Putin regime um, ever has just come out. It's called Putin's People. It's written by a, a journalist named Catherine Belton. She was the FT correspondent in Moscow. I knew her well. She's one of the best investigative reporters I've ever come across. She spent seven years writing this book, and it is the definitive account of Putin's criminality. And it's, it's an absolute, anybody who has any interest in Russia and in Putin needs to read this book because it really, it reports on what happened absolutely in a granular evidence-based way. It's very readable. And 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 it's 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 sort of a required reading at this point. Well, Bill, as this podcast goes out, there will be a increase in clicks uh, on, uh, on 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 all good bookshops uh, for all those listening. Bill, thank you so much uh, for joining us. It's been um, a pleasure and a privilege um, talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Bill. Thank you. Helen, first thing to say is um, technology has defeated Murray, so uh, it's just his turn. It's his yeah, his turn, and we can just really reflect together on what we've just listened to from Bill. And what what what's your takeaway? Well, I mean, I think the world needs people who take a personal tragedy and decide to fight for justice with it. It does need that. Um, and this is a very interesting technique. And as he says, there are people with huge amounts of power who need to know that they will be held um, personally and inconveniently to account, even if they live in a regime that will give them um, impunity. I mean, it, it's not the whole answer, obviously. Um, and one of the things that I found very depressing about what Bill was saying was the idea of regimes that are not even ideologically driven to want 
something bad to happen to their enemies, but just to disrupt so that a, a, a corrupt kleptocracy can continue on unchallenged. So, you know, it's... But I like the idea that it can be potentially so far-reaching. I mean, there was this great moment, you'll remember, in kind of international criminal law when we kind of had Pinochet here, the, the kind of the Rome negotiations of the ICC were going, and you just got the sense that actually despots were starting to get really worried yeah. about what might happen to them and that there was this kind of potential turning point that, of course, came to, sadly, you know, very little, certainly in terms of a widespread uh, impact. But you can see, as Bill is talking, how this could have a real impact if governments have goodwill to use it properly. Because, as Bill was saying, so many regimes nowadays are kind of on the take. And it's about stashing ill-gotten gains, whether you are Putin or you're running a, a, a despotic regime anywhere on the globe. You're, you're putting your money here and in Switzerland. And this could be really effective if if used. Yeah, but that's the if, isn't it? So I think um, you made the point that we've we've passed the regulations. We're going to um, use Magnitsky sanctions against certain people, but at the same time, there still, still seems to be absolutely no will at all to publish the ISC report, which, as um, Bill hints, um, his evidence would suggest that there is some corruption on both sides of the political divide in this country too. And the problem is that as regimes and individuals within them become so powerful, it takes an act of will by the remaining democracies governed by a rule of law to want to do this. It's not international, you know, uh, universal jurisdiction where a judge can take um, action as originally happened with the Spanish judge in the Pinochet case. It's a question of governments deciding to make um, orders and impose sanctions. Well, then let's wrap up with um, a, a brief discussion about some of the developments in the last week. Um, yeah. I mean, the first one really kind of touching on Bill's theme about where's truth gone and disorder and uh, how that plays into the hands of despots, which is President Trump's decision to commute the sentence of his longtime friend, Roger Stone, notwithstanding Stone's, the findings by the jury uh, of Stone's um, deep involvement in unlawful activities with WikiLeaks and the Russians. Yes. Um, and so, and you know, this is following on from the resignation of the entire prosecution team, I think, a few months ago, when Attorney General Barr tried to interfere with the sentencing for Stone. I mean, what do we take of what's going on there? Is it any worse than what's previously gone on with presidential pardons for donors or a, a friends of donors. I mean, is this something that fits into this time of no truth disorder? I think it is. And I think it is a, a qualitatively worse because this, these are federal crimes about interfering with democracy. That's where I think the difference is. I think the whole concept of a presidential pardon is problematic. But when it's a pardon for crimes of interfering with democracy, then you really do have a problem. And I really hope that what happens is that in that democracy, people step up as some, some Republicans, a few Republicans, Mitt Romney, for example, have done to say this is just not OK. And there is a, a movement, Republicans for the rule of law. I guess the question is how well the democracy is functioning when many people have no uh, 
neutral or even truthful sources of news. And there isn't a kind of common baseline of understanding of truth. That's where I think the, the problem really starts. But as people have pointed out, he, Roger Stone is still a convicted felon. It's just that he's not in prison or won't be in prison. Yeah, although watch this space as to Paul Flynn and um, Manafort and um, et al. I mean, let's just um, quickly move to uh, across the Atlantic, but saying for the sadly not too dissimilar theme, which it looks at least at the time that we're going out as though the incumbent has won the election in Poland, so the Law and Justice Party remain um, in power. What are your fears as to where this leaves Poland and its role in the Council of Europe um, and the EU, and what that means for rule of law on the continent? Well, what it means for the EU is, I think, that the, the problem. I mean, the first thing I think to say is how narrow it appears, I and mean, we don't have the final results, but how narrow it appears that due to victory was, I think, 51.2% in the report I read. So there clearly is... Um, in Poland, a, a kind of culture war there that's pretty much down the middle. It's a bit pretty much the same proportions as Brexit, for example. It feels as if there are people in a country who are moving apart, but the consequences are so serious because of what's going to, I think, almost inevitably happen now um, in terms of politicization of the judiciary, the continuation of laws that prevent as I understand it, the judiciary from enforcing EU law as a primary consideration, that's really going to be the the moment when the EU has to decide, are we going to um, use Article 7 of the Treaty of the European Union to lay down some lines about the kind of democracy you have to be to be part of the EU? Do we really want to be losing members of the EU right at this moment? But, you know, I can't see that there is... The, the steps that have been taken in Poland and particularly and in um, Hungary don't really put them beyond the pale. Something has to be done. Let's end up uh, back home. Uh, kind of raised at the beginning, we're in this kind of rather bizarre time in which one government minister seems to be suggesting that we will be required by law to wear a mask if we go inside. Uh, Michael Gove suggests, no, we can all be just relied on to be um, sensible. It's all rather reminiscent of where we were at the beginning of the lockdown, where no one can tell a difference between a law, a rule, a guidance, and no one knows what they should be doing or might have to do. I mean, what's going on? So I suppose this might just be a, a usual political row where one person says, I think it should just be guidance, and one person says, I think it should be a law, and one side or the other wins. And really, that's fine as far as I'm concerned. But what I hope is that it isn't um, a bit, as you say, at the beginning of lockdown, where the lack of clarity about what is a rule, what is a law, what is guidance was so murky um, that you almost wondered if it was deliberate creative tension so that rules could be applied when you wanted to and not applied when you didn't want to. It does strike me that it's really fundamental to the rule of law that we have some clarity about that um, because when laws aren't clear and transparent, then you start to have a sense that some people have to obey and other people don't have to obey or that uh, there's a potential problems about some people being uh, focused on more than others for breaches of the law. And I do think that's worrying. It may be at the softer end of things compared with Poland and Trump and Russia, but it it does matter. We, we have to explain why this matters and persuade people to understand. Well, that's a good point to uh, end a podcast that's trying to promote <laughs> compliance with the rule of law. Helen, thanks very much indeed. We're going to be back 
with our next podcast, which will be the end of season one. Uh, and uh, we look forward to uh, that. Thanks very much indeed. Mm-hmm.